Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Paul Hawken is an environmentalist, entrepreneur, author, and activist who is one of the environmental movement's leading voices. He's the best-selling author of eight books, including the critically acclaimed title Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever to reverse global warming. He's also the recipient of our 2017 Lifetime Achievement Award, which we presented to Paul at our Landmark Revitalize event. It's an honor to have him back on the show today to talk about his new must-read book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. Amen to that. Paul, welcome. Hey, Jason. So good to see you. Thank you so much. So good to see you. Uh, I love your book. We love you. And so... Put aside all that love, there's some pretty ominous news uh, with regards to climate change in the name of this IPCC report, which came out a few weeks ago and said we may reach an increase of 1.5 degrees Celsius a decade earlier than we thought. So I want to get your take on that report. Well, there's many ways to look at that report. As researchers, there was nothing new in the report for us. We get RSS feeds every day from climate scientists and the UNFCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And what was new about it actually was some good news. Two things. One is that it was unanimous. No IPCC report before has been unanimous. And every country in the world that's a member of the UN Framework on Climate Change signed on to it. Now, that is extraordinary because Russia, China, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, there was many countries that did not sign on before. So the fact that the world is unanimous now, virtually unanimous on what we face, the impacts, the the science itself is extraordinary. Second, what kind of got lost too was that we now know that the moment we stop increasing our greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere, into the atmosphere, within a reasonably short time, heating stops. In other words, it, it, we don't get warmer. It, st- it stays steady, but it doesn't get warmer. For decades, it was assumed that since the carbon dioxide stayed up there for you know, decades, if not centuries, that we would continue to experience an increase in warming for decades and centuries. In other words, even if you hit net zero, you have, you're, you're not home yet at all. We're not home in net zero anyway, because we have to draw down, we have to bring down that greenhouse gas levels back to pre-industrial levels. But so those are the two good news. The other interesting thing about the IPCC report, I thought, was its timing, inadvertent, but nevertheless, the timing which is it was released during a time when the whole of the Northern Hemisphere is on fire in one way or another, from Siberia to Greece to Sardinia to Italy to Spain to Canada to, you know, obviously the United States and so forth. And not just on flame, but I mean seriously on flame and on fires that have never been seen before in terms of ferocity and scope and breadth. So I think it that created a, a very teachable moment for the world. And I think it went deeper into institutional governing bodies than prior 
reports had. I mean, insurance, I mean, investment, I mean, corporate. And I can't say about government because I don't really know what's going on with governments in the rest of the world. I know, I don't think it made a big impression here because we're so polarized and ridiculously arguing about the cause. So, but I have suspect that it, it did make a difference in places, even if they haven't been noted or publicized, whether it's China or whether it's Rwanda, or whether I don't know. I mean, I just feel like it, it made a really big impact because of the simultaneity of what we're seeing worldwide and, of course, the report itself. But there's nothing new in the report. The, but it was new that it gathered it together, which it does every five, six years, and announced it to the world. Got it. So coming back to the book, your previous book, Drawdown, was so comprehensive, so thorough, so good. Why this book? Why Regeneration? Well, <clears throat> Regeneration was always a sequel in my mind. In other words, I always knew I was going to do Regeneration. So it's not like, gee, what am I going to do? Let's write a new book. It, <laughs> I always knew I was going to. Drawdown did exactly what I set out to do, which is to map, measure, and model the most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. And actually, there's two things I set out to do. One is to name the goal, reverse global warming, and to map, measure, and model the extant solutions that could scale and to see if we could achieve basically net zero by 2050 Naming the goal was a first because the goal up until then had been mitigate, tackle, combat, fight, etc. We still see these verbs all the time. And what I was trying to say is verbs are not goals. They're uh, nouns are goals, and we need a noun. And so that's what drawdown was. And to introduce that, I'm very happy and grateful that word has become absolutely ubiquitous in the world. It's used thousands and thousands of times a day in the vernacular, which is where it came from, by the way. It is scientific vernacular. We didn't coin that term. And But the scope of drawdown actually was fairly narrow by on purpose, which was to provide the wherewithal for people to see that we had the solutions at hand and that cumulatively they would have uh, a substantive effect. Okay. I gave, I think, 128 speeches. I think one of them to <laughs> you guys. And <laughs> uh, 22. Yes, you months. did. Standing I, ovation at Revitalize. Yeah. Revitalize. Yeah, I remember it well. Met Light Watkins there. And great, great friends I've met there. I have, I've had ever since. So it was, great. it was a great thing, Revitalize for me. But again and again, and almost in every occasion when there was a Q&A, people would raise their hand and say, well, what can I do or what should I do? They wanted to know what to do and what to do and comprise how to do it as well, not just naming it. Like, I, I want to do something. That came out right away, always. And I came out with this really lame answer, which is, I don't know what you should do because I don't know you, and I don't, you know, which is true, but it bespoke of something on a deeper level that I knew was missing from Drawdown, which is really what and how to do it. How? So 
if you go into the solutions that are in drawdown regeneration, that also exponential roadmap and nature climate solutions and TNC, I mean, there's a lot of solutions out there now. You cannot find a comprehensive page on the website or someplace that tells you exactly what and how to do it. Or if you look at challenges like global fishing fleets or plastics or the boreal forest, you know, which is being converted to toilet paper, tar sands and coal, what to do about that either. And those are challenges and solutions. And so the book regeneration is really the last eight pages, which you saw action and connection. That's a wormhole to the website. And that is where the action is because a website is a worldwide collaborative of people who are working, who are solving and who know a lot. And each nexus uh, solution or challenge is the most complete, concise, but complete uh, summary of all the things you can do. Here was the call to action. This is what we're talking about. This is what you can do as an individual. This is what you can do as a family, as a neighborhood, as a community, as a school, as a college, as a city, as a company, as a corporation and provincial governments and so forth. These are things, the different levels of agency that we have as individuals. This is what we can do. It left out artists because they're so imaginative. We could imagine to tell them what to do. <laughs> artists can do a lot as well. And then it went into the bad actors, like with the boreal forest. Here are the bad actors, Procter & Gamble, Georgia Pacific, Kimberly Clark. Here's the name of the CEOs. This is their phone number. This is their email. They would love to hear from you that making the treated toilet, you know, I mean, the, the treated toilet paper pipeline is not a really great idea for the greatest stock of carbon on the planet besides the oceans is the boreal forest. And then we have the good actors, the people who are making influence and, 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 and who are doing a lot. Then we have a list of all the NGOs that are kicking butt and very active. In this case, the First Nations who are reclaiming tribal rights and uh, sovereignty, sovereignty to prevent this. We have videos, we have books, we have articles and links. And so when you, if you want to do something about the boreal or degraded land restoration or electrifying your home or whatever, it's all there. And there's nothing like that in the world today. And so drawdown was done because nothing existed like that. Regeneration is done because nothing existed like that. And so I love how you talk about regeneration to start off the book. So can you do that? Can you define regeneration for our listeners right now and how you think about this really beautiful idea of how we, how we go about getting there? Well, the, the first thing to recognize is they're already there. That regeneration is totally innate to every living creature, and we're living creatures. In other words, as humans, we regenerate every day. We eat, we sleep, we take care of ourselves, we take care of our loved ones, we take care of where we live, we take care of the plants, we take care of our pets, we take care. We are actively helping ourselves and others regenerate every single day. That's what life does. Life does it everywhere on the planet. And the default mode of life and real life again, is that as soon as you on the exterior level, that is in the environment, stop clear cutting, burning, scraping, poisoning, whatever it is we're doing, 
to destroy life, the default mode of life is to immediately go back into regeneration. So regeneration is who we are as opposed to a concept out there like, oh, another concept. Sustainability was a concept. Regeneration is not a concept. And so regeneration means to put life at the center of every act and decision. It's very, this is my definition, it's very simple. And we live in an economy, as I think we know, but we sort of brush it aside, that is extractive. In the way we make money, with the way we create capital, the way we create value, in quote marks, is to extract. We extract things from the land, from the forest, from the oceans. We extract it from other cultures, from poor people. We extract value. And when we extract, we're taking life. We're taking life away. No one intends to do that. It's not like they're on the corporate <laughs> mission statement. It just is so. And so when we extract life, we are harming life, okay? We're degenerating. That is what we do ubiquitously in every economic sector, process, service, and, and product that we make and do, with, almost without exception. And so the proposition of the book Regeneration is to everyone is to say, look at that road of the degenerative road, the degenerative pathway, we can see the end of that road. That's what the IPCC report was about, right? Like that road doesn't go much further. Well, so does the Convention on Biodiversity, the CBD. It said, well, we're not going to have creatures here. We're losing the rate of extinction and the rate of loss, ecosystem loss. We're going to lose our biodiversity. And we're seeing it in our children, in disease, in the rate of which from everything from autism to type 2 diabetes to obesity to chemical sensitivities to allergies to it goes on and on is climbing more than linearly faster than that around the world and so forth so another type of degeneration you know physical degeneration we're seeing mental degeneration which I think is type 3 diabetes, which is inflammation of the brain, which is also caused by inflammatory products that we eat, drink, and inhale. And so regeneration is saying, can we just do a 180? Like, stop. Do we really want to go there? I don't think so. None of us do. Really? None of us do. And what would it look like to go the other way and to put life at the center of every act and decision? And step by step to re-examine, to look at what we're doing, to make self-reflection, to see what would that mean. Because right now we're stealing the future. We're just taking it. And we're turning into money. Okay. And regeneration is about healing the future. And we can turn that into capital as well, by the way. So we can have an economy that goes either way. It seems crazy to keep choosing the way that's going to end life on earth or at least end the civilization on earth. And that's what we're doing right now. So regeneration is actually a word that encompasses a sense of opening, of enlarging. It, it expands what is possible and expands, most importantly, what we perceive as possibility because the language around the climate movement around addressing global warming or the climate crisis has been 
very much driven by the science, which was driven by predictions, which were threatening, and future existential threat being the common language heard again and again. It invoked fear. Activists took it up and used it to evoke blame and shame as well. So fear, threat, blame, and shame. And we know that they were right in terms of the science, but completely inept (laughs) in terms of communication, because that communication does not work. It numbs people. It turns them off. It makes them feel disempowered not empowered. And so regeneration is going to try and do a figure ground shift. And Jason, we've seen these figure ground shifts. There was gay shame. Remember that? Wasn't that long ago? We have a whole month of gay pride. That is a figure ground shift. And we had vegan militants telling the world, almost like Pada, that if you ate anything with an animal in it, that you were really harming the world and yourself. And now we have plant-rich diets, plant-based diets. So the language changed to be inclusive as opposed to be exclusive and judgmental. So we are at that same threshold, I think, where we have to move away from sustainability and fighting and combating and tackling and mitigating and all these words we're using around climate to one about regeneration because it is something we can all do. It brings us together in a way that is the opposite of polarizing language. I love that. And to build off this idea of being inclusive, being inspirational, being hopeful, I think it's always helpful to have a North Star, if you will. So I'm curious, are there places, are there countries that, in your opinion, are doing regeneration right, where we can look to, we can learn from and say, hey, they're doing it over there. If they can do it, we can learn from them and maybe we can do this too. Of course, we have to recognize that pretty much we all did it not so long ago. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's so interesting. I had a phone call from the NHK, which is the BBC of Japan, and they wanted to know what advice I could give to Japanese farmers to become regenerative farmers. And I thought, wow, that's so fascinating. One of the books that made a deep impression on me when I went into the organic food business was a book called Farmers of 40 Centuries. And it described how Japan, Korea, and China were able to farm the same farmland for 40 centuries with no loss of fertility, actually an increase in fertility. And so in a sense, what NHK was asked, I said, what you you should ask me is, when did you forget? Today, Mm -hmm. there is no single country. I, I can't point to a country But I can say that regeneration is a burgeoning movement all around the world on all levels of that word. Regen Ag for sure. And Regen Ag, farmers, some some of the most stubborn people I know, I grew up on the farm, my grandfather was a farmer. And Regen Ag, because they're hitting the wall, they're hitting that degenerative wall. That road ended for them on their farm one by one. Their inputs got more expensive. The outputs were, they got less for their outputs for their crops. They were getting poisoned. They were getting cancers in their grandchildren. It was so rare in Iowa that nobody knew had could diagnose them in the hospitals there for like great grandchildren. The waters were getting bad. They couldn't drink the well water. I mean, and now 
even the worst thing, which is the weeds are becoming resistant to, you know, Roundup and Dicamba and all the other herbicides taking over the farms. <laughs> the soil has been destroyed by glyphosate and chemical fertilizers and tillage. And those farmers are, they're, they're pivoting. They're pivoting because if they don't, they're going to lose the farm. And, it's, and farmers first started doing this maybe 10 years ago. I mean, some of them never changed. So with all due respect to those farmers, but I'm talking about industrial ag. And they did it at great risk because it got tough. The, that transition period was very tough. The soils were addicted to chemicals. And then all of a sudden you pull them off that like an addict and you got a really poor yield the first year. And the, But at the same time, they didn't really have a choice, either lose the farm or try to make this transition. And the more and more are making it. And what's so beautiful is they're talking to each other. Other farmers are talking to you know their neighbors. When it first started, the neighbor who went to Regen Ag, she or, or I mean, his or her worst moment and most difficult process or obstacle was the coffee shop in town. And they'd go in there and then go, what's going on out there? You're losing, you know, because there's weeds everywhere. It wasn't weeds, it was cover crops. When they wouldn't bear ground, it wasn't meat and all that sort of stuff. And now you're seeing a real shift in this country and all over the world to regenerative agriculture. And you're seeing it, the shift of Nestle, you're seeing it from Walmart, you're seeing it from Simplot, mixed french fries from McDonald's, you see it from General Mills, you're seeing it from Danone, you're seeing it, who are going back out and saying, this is the food we want on, and this is the way we want regenerative food from regenerative ag. And are people misusing the term? Yes. Are they fudging? Yes. Some of them are. It doesn't matter about calling them out, but the direction is now towards regeneration because they know the road ends. So that's an area of huge change. And I think the other one is in healthcare, actually. Functional medicine, like because healthcare is hitting the wall too. 20% of our GDP is now to pharma and healthcare, 20%, one out of $5. And we have one of the worst healthcare outcomes of any developing nation in the world. And so, and we know type two diabetes just alone will bankrupt our healthcare system in the, which is in place. That is the amount of it that's in place. And so there's an area where I, you're seeing a resurgence, a change, a shift. And then you're seeing it in cities. You're seeing it by urban planning and mayors. You're seeing the 15-minute city. You're seeing the realization that if you bring in plants, you bring in birds, you bring in animals, you bring in life into the city, it changes everything from, from an amount of crime to wellness to attention spans for children to it, it changes the whole city, the whole community. It's a community, big one, albeit, but big one. So yeah, regeneration is definitely spreading rapidly throughout the world. I love it. So th there are a couple of points I want to come back to. And, and so earlier you said we live in a polarized world. I completely agree. And, and we are still very polarized with regards to our, our view on nutrition. And you talked about regenerative agriculture working and, and that's exciting. And, and in, in the hardcore health and wellness world, you still have a group of people who say, look, the answer is a grass-fed burger produced with regenerative agricultural practices. And then you got a group of people who say, no, no meat, no animals. The answer is an impossible burger and beyond burger. 
I know that's a big question, but what's Paul Hawkins' take on those two? Those are extremes. I know they're extremes, but we live in a world of extremes. Yeah. What do you say to those who operate in those extremes? Well, the first thing I would say, and I, uh, the, the, the most regenerative thing you can do is to listen. <laughs> the, the, the thing that's separating us is we're not listening at all to each other. And so what's happening when you, we when people don't feel listened to is they raise the volume, they amplify the rhetoric. Now, it's not to say they're not some people are very angry and okay, why, but we want to let's, let's listen. Where does the anger come from? And where does the outrage come from? Where does the absolute, where does their inability to listen come from? In other words, why are they shut off? So going back to Impossible Beyond and Regenerative Burgers, first of all, some some basic principles. To me, it's both. That's like, why are you arguing? You cannot restore, regenerate land without animals. That's nature has never farmed, forested, wetland, grassland without animals. Okay, so that's just the law. Okay. So it's a question if you're going to farm, which animals and how and why. I mean, biggest little farm, they use worms, for goodness sakes, use vermiculture. Fair play to you. You can use chickens like Polyface Farms, you know, Joel does in, in Virginia. Joel Salatin. Oh, Joel Salatin, yeah. And you can use cattle the way Gay Brown does. But you could, or Carl, Colin Seitz in Australia using sheep and so forth. You can use llamas and alpaca if you want and just clip the fur off. I mean, but you need animals to interact with the land in ways that regenerate. If you just leave them on the land, that degenerates the land. So what we know is that anytime you have ruminants or herding animals or that if you move them through a rapid you know, process of grazing and don't leave them on the land too long, you get regenerative behavior from the grasses and the forbs that send out deeper roots in the soil and so forth. Okay, so the the argument against beef altogether is interesting. I have a friend in the Faroe Islands and her father lives there. She lived there. It's north. We're talking about... <laughs> Two days from Denmark north. It's like as far north as people live. It's like Iceland only north, even more so. They're not vegans. They're not vegetarians. I mean, so people, we've learned to eat besides industrial agriculture and capos, put it that aside. I mean, but people learned over the, over millennia to eat what was around them and to make use of it in such a way that it was sustained, that is, it was sustainable and so forth. And so we're no different. I would take exception with Impossible Burger, however. And the reason I take an exception with Impossible Burger is not because of their intention and not because they synthesize heme to make it taste like beef, uh, but because they're they're adamantly for GMO soy. And that's where I take exception, not the purpose or intention, but GM soy is uses glyphosate and glyphosate is an antibacterial antiviral it's an antibiotic originally it's not new it's originally it was an antibiotic and it kills the soil and and so we have to get out of this idea that we need to kill life in order to make life this is a contradiction and so we cannot be using so I, I wish Pat Brown and a possible was saying 
got it. We really haven't, we can't source enough, but as soon as we can, we'll make the transition. We'll find those farmers, but not. Instead, they're, they're defending GMO, which is indefensible as a pesticide, herbicide. And so that's where I take exception, but it's not to the idea of burgers, in this case, that mimic the taste and texture of something that people love to eat. Well, it's an important point because I think it's a nuanced conversation. To your point, we need animals for regenerative agriculture. I think everyone agrees industrialized agriculture is terrible. Like we need to get rid of that. Some people will say with regenerative ag, oh, there's not enough land. We can't feed enough people. But you've provided some case studies of people who are doing it. I think Previously, we talked about Pedro Dinez, I think his name is, in South Pedro America. Dinez, like yeah. people are doing, yeah. yeah, people are doing it at scale. It's working, and it actually can be positive for in terms of our carbon impact. So, like, there, there's a lot of good there. And at the same time, eating less meat. If you're going to eat less meat, there's, I think everyone would agree, we, we eat too much. Eating less meat, you're going to have some fake meat. Another discussion if that's good for your health or not. But like, that's actually that's. The answer is both. Correct. Yeah, I think first of all, it's not fake meat. It's using the the, the t- it's hijacking the taste buds to give you something that's vegetable based that you enjoy eating. So it's not fake meat. The fake meat is cultured meat, which to me is like that's another category all by itself. In terms of not enough land, there's not enough land for industrial egg. There's plenty of land for regenerative egg. This is a figure ground shift we have to understand. So 70% of the food produced by industrial egg goes to CAFOs. It doesn't go to human beings. So we have plenty of land to feed human beings regeneratively. We have more than enough. In fact, we can convert some of the land right now uh, back to grasslands and back to wildlands and so forth. So, And the idea that somehow regenerative doesn't produce some of enough is just simply not true. The question is, what are we producing on our land? To what end? For what reason? And that's where it gets a little, where the argument, I think, falls down if you really look at the, the lag. Industrial lag does, it, it, look at it, came out in the 19th century, the first chemical fertilizer, I think it was 1842 or something, I forget what it was. And, the, and then there was a Haber-Bosch invention in the early 20th century to make artificial nitrate, actually, which makes bombs too, by the way. And the Haberbosch came out of Germany. And by that time, even, I mean, even especially in Europe, the farms were played out a lot. I mean, the soil was not doing great. The Europeans did not have good agricultural techniques, frankly. And so then you put on nitrate and all of a sudden the plants were bigger, taller, greener, faster, and going, wow, what's wrong with this picture? Nothing. <laughs> and you were harvesting more and there was more food and you made more money if you're a farmer and it was like hallelujah and so that continued through the 20th century but the problem with that and you have to go back to the beginning which what was going on there what was going on is that we were feeding macronutrients directly to the plant okay that's the same thing as if you are in a coma and you're on an IV drip we're feeding macronutrients directly to Jason, right? So that's what industrial ag was, is, and does. And so what happens is the plant can grow faster, but it's weaker. It's growing too fast. And it doesn't have 
the minerals and phytonutrients it used to have because now its roots do not have to go down so deep. And so it becomes infested. Insects like, oh, this is delicious. Okay. And so you need insecticides. Then you have silent spraying, right? And then it's subject to competition from weeds. And now you have herbicides, right? Because the weeds are coming about not just because of the farming technique, but well, the farming technique of, of the, destroying the soil. And so noxious weeds are starting to come out in the soil that wouldn't have been there before, Canadian thistle and amaranth and pigweed and things like that. And so glyphosate to the rescue. So now you're killing the, the soil and the weeds and you're killing insects, but you still have the plant. <laughs> well, the plant itself is nutrient deficient. And it's going into ultra-processed foods, and 60% of our food is ultra-processed. Now, Regen Ag basically is feeding the soil, not the plant. Soil is feeding the plant. So the roots go down deeper, exudates the sugar, the carbs from the roots going into, you know, being eaten by bacteria. Bacteria is making bioavailable, the minerals and so forth. There is, we have no idea what's going on down there in the soil, no more than we really understand what's going on in our gut, but they're very similar in terms of their extraordinary complexity that changes every minute, by the way, it's not fixed. And so it's kind of teaching really what the difference between industrial and regen ag in terms of where, what, what should we do for the whole of the earth, which is let's go back to cause and not try to cure technology, using technology to cure what technology is causing, right? And that's what we're doing now. We want more and more technology to, to fix what technology has caused instead of going back to upstream. Scientists now is being basically dealing with symptoms instead of cause. Medicine is dealing with symptoms, loves some symptoms, by the way, because you have to take the drug every day, instead of going upstream to cause. And so regeneration goes upstream. Let's fix it, really. But it is what we are doing, not out there somewhere. It is our mind and how we see nature. It's about getting in alignment with biology. And so, again, when I started Erwan, when I started had organic farms, organic food, I was mau-mau by MIT, by the head of the Department of Nutrition at Harvard, I mean, again and again, is it, oh, you hippies, you're eating this and so forth, but, you know, you're going to starve the world. The children will starve if we followed your ways of agriculture. Well, children are starving right now, and it isn't because of organic farming. And so this guilt-tripping of farming in a way that's sustainable over eons and centuries and that honors life and that creates more water in the soil that feeds the pollinators, which we need, that suppresses noxious weeds by using cover crops, by the way, and, and animals on the land, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is not only the future, but it is basically, as I said, a guideline to thinking about all the other problems we have. Interesting. So... You also mentioned the 15-minute city earlier, and you talk about that in the book. I think the concept is fascinating. I'm curious, are there 15-minute cities in America or globally which already 
have this that we should be aware of, that we should go visit, that if we should try to encourage our local governments to emulate, like who's doing this well? Sure. I mean, Provincetown, there's a lot of cities all over the country that are 15 minutes. Provincetown? Yeah. Provincetown's a 15-minute city? If you live in it. <laughs> of course. Yeah, well, what other? Living, what are some other cities that come to mind? Well, most small cities are 15-minute cities. I mean, we call them towns. Okay, and villages and so forth. Because you, it takes longer to, I mean, 15 minutes, you're out of the city limits. You talk one end to the other, you're gone and so forth. So that is innate to human habitation. The urban environment, what we call the big cities, were built for cars, not for people. And they're built, so people got basically planned out. <laughs> And so the 15-minute city is to relook at the city and say, wait a minute, why shouldn't somebody be able to get everything they need within 15 minutes of their house, their apartment, their co-op, their condo, whatever it is, wherever they live, by foot or bike, and safely, by the way, as well. And so the 15-minute city is growing, again, like crazy. Paris is absolutely on it. Cities that had neighborhoods like London are there in many ways already, but not completely. And I know where we live here, which is suburban, suburb of San Francisco and Marin County. I mean, you have to get on the freeway to go to a hardware store or to buy a safety pin. It's crazy. Wow. And we had that all right here. We did. And now, so it's looking at urban planning from a, a, a very different point of view. There's lots of ways to look at urban planning. One is about safety. One is about nature. One is about access. One is uh, about equity. I mean, so we're looking at urban planning with new eyes right now. And, and one of those includes being a human being and using your feet or wheelchair. <laughs> so you mentioned cars and I can't help but think of all the exciting electric vehicles coming down the pipeline. Can I go back to the Super Bowl commercial, the big Super Bowl commercial this year, GMC Hummer doing an EV. They made a huge deal out of it. It's exciting that basically every major automobile manufacturer is coming out with an EV and have an aggressive EV pipeline. And so with that said, I couldn't help but remember a line that stayed with me since Revitalize in 2017 when you said, if you think Elon and Tesla are going to save us, then you're like Thelma and Louise about to drive off a cliff. So do you still feel that way with regards to electric vehicles and their impact on climate change? <laughs> well, let's just parse this question a little bit. Electric vehicles... Definitely, when they replace an internal combustion engine, seriously reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. No question about it. And our reliance on fossil fuels. Okay. Case made. The Thelma and Louise comment comes from this, which is that there is a assumption that if we swap out all our fossil fuel combustion, whether it's for a car, transport, whether it's for electrical generation or whatever we use it for, 
that we've solved the vast bulk of the problem with respect to the climate crisis. Since the combustion of fossil fuels are 84% of our CO2 emissions, not our meth, well, they also are part of our methane emissions from natural gas, but, and that is what I was trying to get to, which is that we think we can live the same life as we are now, only more and better, and solve this relationship we have with the biosphere because the atmosphere and the biosphere are the same thing. And that's what I'm saying because the, we can, if the world, Jason, if the world was all renewable today, every car, every home, every city, every company was using renewable energy and so forth, we would still be going right off the Thelma and Louise cliff. And this is what people have to understand. Because I mean, they don't have to understand it. This is what I want people to understand. <laughs> you can destroy the Amazon and the rainforest with renewably charged electric chainsaws. Okay. You can right. basically use electrical tractors, diesel tractors, to grow more GMO soy in the Amazon, what used to be the native lands of the Ashwar people. You can, I can just go keep going down and so forth. So it's, what happens when we look at these solutions in a siloed way, we, we sort of put blinders on ourselves in terms of what we have is an economy that's totally out of control. The IPCC and the World Bank scenarios for 2050 show us growing this economy, economy by 2.3 times more, bigger than today. It shows 2100 as being seven times bigger than the economy today. And I want to say, really? Go figure. Tell me how. That is a disaster. And so the momentum, you know, and the inertia of the social, political, economic system doesn't really look at itself as being the cause. It looks at combustion as being a source, for sure, it is, no question about it. And we need to change it, brilliantly done by solar and wind companies, thank God. And we do need vehicles that are electrically uh, run and from renewable electricity based on batteries, no question about it. But that in itself does not solve the problem or the task at hand. Fair point. So look, we want people to feel empowered and you know, if you're going to go out and buy an electric vehicle, that's great. However, it's clear from what you're saying, we need, to, we need to do more. And so in the spirit of leaving people empowered, for our listeners, what are the three things or five things or two things or one, whatever the, you pick the number, Paul, but what are the things that everyone, regardless of location, income or resources, can try to do to help? Okay, I'll, I'll answer that question in two ways. One is I'll, I'll subscribe to your question, which is the, a listing. Uh, <laughs> and, and in almost all cases, maybe not your listeners, by the way, but in almost all cases, number one would be food, which is what they buy and what they eat would be probably number one. Number two, 
would be clothing. Clothing is the second most polluting industry in the world. In the United States, we buy a new garment every six to seven days, average, on average. And it is about eight to 10% of global emissions come from the clothing industry. And I think, and closets are where clothing goes to die. (laughs) And just like refrigerators are where food goes to die. And so food involves both waste and what you eat and where you get it from. In other words, since 40% of food is wasted, half on the farm, half in processing at home. So that's one important thing, what you can do at home. The second thing is buy it from sources that are actively engaged in restoring supply chains, so local, that they're using organics or regenerative methods, that it's healthy food for you and your family, that it doesn't cause harm elsewhere. And then with clothing, the same thing, which is buy clothing where companies are taking care of the land from which they get their fiber and like Patagonia, that they take care of their employees, that they're very careful about the garment workers. An example of that is in 1800, in the dark satanic mills, Hobbesian mills of lore, the average uh, garment worker in those mills got paid a penny an hour. Well, in today's dollars, that's 34, 35 cents an hour. The average wage of a garment worker today in the world is 34 to 35 cents an hour. In other words, in 221 years, there hasn't been one pay raise for garment workers. And so that is Amazon Essentials, that's Lord & Taylor, that's Bloomingdale's, that's, you know, Gucci. (laughs) That's, I mean, I can go on and name brands, I'm saying. And there's some great Everlane and Eileen Fisher in Patagonia and Sway down in Los Angeles, S-U-A-Y who are just doing magnificent things in there. It's the same difference between industrial ag, if you will, and organic regenerative farming and food and so forth. The third thing is transport. Get off the airplanes, forget about it. If you have to fly, then use, you don't do an offset alone. If you're gonna do an offset, make sure it's the real deal, not offsetting your carbon 20 years from now. make sure it's doing it within the year you purchase that offset and then do it five times over. Do it onset, which is don't you, it's not a gain to offset a loss. (laughs) You're like, it's not a gain. And that's what an offset is. 95% of offsets are bogus. They do not reduce carbon. Only 5% do. Now, some of those others are pretty good. They're protecting really important food systems and cultures and, and, and indigenous people. Those are good, okay? But we need to draw down. We need to, to take responsibility for our past, not just our present and for the future. So it should be 5X. If it's $15 a ton, you used a ton to go to London, it should be $75. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing, is really find out where you live. It sounds so silly. Who lives there? Who are the people who used to live there? What did they know? What don't you know? Do you know, Can you name the trees? Can you name the plants around you? Do you know what the birds come, are who come and go? Which ones are migratory? Which ones are not migratory? The pollinators, do you know where they've gone? Are there still hummingbirds around your home? There used to be. 
How about why is it you never see a butterfly again? And let's find out where you live and where you where you what you'll find out is you might be living in a place <clears throat> that is destroying its habitat, its ecosystems, is destroying the land and so forth. So now it's live, inhabit, inhabit this place you are and do it in a way that's fun and, and learn from others who know from there's plenty of docents and people out there who share that knowledge and so forth. And the, the fifth thing I would say, you said five, you wanted five? Or is that enough? That's four, four, five. We, we don't, four, four is good. Four is good. I don't want to force a five if there's not no, a five. Keep going. But the most important thing, though, is to understand, I think the fifth thing is to not think that you're an individual. You're not. That's a delusion we wake up with every morning and we struggle with it all day until we go to sleep. <laughs> and we all are parts of networks, our, our spouses, our children, our family, our communities, our networks, our companies, our schools, our classes, our synagogues, our churches, our clubs, our sporting teams, all those are part of who we are. And so when you think of solutions, stop individuating it. In other words, do what you can. The reason you want to do it is because it makes you more aware, okay? Not just because it has an impact. You want to do it for both reasons. But spread that awareness. Think about solutions that are local, that take, that where a group can learn. We learn better together. We work better together than as individuals. We love to solve problems. As people, that's what makes us human. That's why Homo sapiens are here, not Neanderthals. We cooperated. We're social. We're still social. We still cooperate. And so we have to look at climate solutions as a way of coming together, as a way to being individually responsible, which goes back to the, the blame and shame thing, which is, oh my God, I should do this and this. Don't do it for that reason. Do it because you care and because you love, not because you feel guilty. Don't feel guilty about anything you're doing it, you've done. It doesn't work. But falling in love with life does and appreciating what life is does. Gratitude is a huge help <laughs> to knowing what to do and how to do it. And bringing people together is what we have to do. If we're going to solve this, stem the crisis in a generation, which means to be going in the right direction at the right rate of speed with the right impacts and so forth, we're going to need to do it as groups, not as individuals. And that individuating, in other words, what can you do sort of thing, is another way the oil companies made us feel like we're the problem and they were just doing what we needed and that they were not the problem. And the tobacco companies did it too, remember? Well, you're smoking. We just make them. <laughs> And we have to get out of that mindset. I'm trying to, I'm taking fossil fuels out of my house for water, cooking, and heat, using a heat pump and induction stove. And But I'm sharing with my neighbors. We're all talking about it. We're all figuring out who to do, how to do it, what to buy, which is the best plumber. And we're all figuring out. We don't know. And we all have the same purpose and intention to do it. And so those are the top five. Yeah. Well, well said. We are going to close there. Paul, thank you so much. Congrats on regeneration. Everyone pick it up and check out all of Paul's phenomenal work. Thank you, Paul. 
Thank you, Jason.